Hello, Irenacast listeners, and Happy New Year. 2019 is going to be a great year for the show. If you haven't already listened to our last episode, we officially announced our brand new co-hosts, Bonnie, Raj, and Casey, to the show. Going forward, we have some exciting things planned, so stay tuned. But for this week, we have a wonderful episode for you. One of the newest members of our team, Bonnie, had a chance to sit down with Linda K. Klein and talk about her new book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. This is a great conversation. Uh, If you want to know more about Linda or anything else that's about to be talked about in this discussion, you can do so at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 133. That's again, irenacast.com slash 133. And there in the show notes, you also find all the ways you can contact the show and get a hold of us. So with that, I will shut my mouth and I will hand it over to Bonnie. Hello, Irenacast listeners. This is Bonnie Rambob here. I'm not the usual co-host. But I am here because Jeff and Alan have offered space to have a very important conversation with author Linda K. Klein about her recent book, Pure. And the full title is Pure Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. So Linda, we are just so delighted that you said yes and that you're willing to have this conversation on Arenacast. I know that many of our listeners have already bought your book and have been reading it. So I know they'll be thrilled to hear from you directly. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Thank you so much yeah, for taking your time. And um, we just really look forward to hearing more from you. So if it's okay with you, let's just jump like right into it. Let's do it. I'm in. All right. So I, you know, for our listeners who might not have read your book yet, what was it that inspired you to write this book? I was really inspired by my personal experience. I (laughs) inspired is such a nice word. (laughs) I don't know if that's maybe the right word. I was more driven to write this by my personal experience um, because it was really uh, an experience of pain and an experience of fear and anxiety. So I grew up in the evangelical uh, purity movement. In 1991, I was a seventh grader, and this was the beginning of the purity movement, which of course quickly became a purity industry uh, with purity rings and purity balls and purity pledges and purity curricula and purity books and so on and so on and so on. So I really grew up surrounded by the purity message. And that was one of the reasons that I ultimately ended up leaving the church because I really felt this message was problematic even when I was a young person, this idea that there were pure people and in particular pure girls and women and impure ones, you know, ones that are worthy of, uh, of love and affection from a good, a good Christian man and ones that would be lucky if they would ever be loved, I was told. You know, these kinds of ideas were, were problematic to me even when I was a young person. But the older that I got, the more clear it became that I was inherently impure in a lot of people's eyes. There was just something about me you know, maybe it was the sort of charisma that I had as somebody who wanted to be an actress, or maybe it was the curvy body that I had as someone who developed pretty early, but I was just constantly being pulled aside and accused of being impure. 
And ultimately, that was why I left the community. And the reality is, is that when I left, I thought that I would now suddenly no longer struggle with all of the things that I had struggled with growing up, sexual shame and fear and anxiety, and in fact, discovered that those things did not go away just because I left the community. And that was really the beginning of the journey. You know, here I thought it was the end of the journey. <laughs> I thought that I was now free from these things and would be beginning uh, a new life. And indeed, it was a new life, but it was a new life of trying to deal with and um, heal from what I had inherited from my old life. So then you sort of dove back into it. Did you feel like it was a return then going back and interviewing lots of people who, who had similar experiences? It, it was a return in many ways, actually, you know, and, and it wasn't an immediate return. You know, when the pain uh, the pain started in the early days, I was very alone. I was mm. now in a secular world. I did not know anybody else who was experiencing what I was experiencing. Um, you know, I was experiencing nightmares and having a lot of anxiety that was sometimes being held in the body. I had a a lot of anxiety, particularly around sexual exploration, um, or even thoughts of sexual exploration would cause me to have anxiety, um, which would sometimes have me, you know, just in a heap of tears, uh, you know, and completely non-functional. So for a lot of years, I felt incredibly alone and incredibly broken. And mm -hmm. it really wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, so probably about five years after I left the church, that I did this return that you reference. And the return was because, you know, of of all those years, the one thing, the one sort of glimmer of hope that I had was that there were um, a few people who I had had whispered conversations with who were experiencing very, very similar things to what I was experiencing. And all of them were raised in evangelical churches. And most of them who I had talked to were raised in my evangelical church. They were just raised in, you know, alongside me. They were a couple years older or a couple years younger, or they were people that I really grew up with in youth group. And those whispered stories uh, made me made me suspect that maybe there was something bigger that I could understand that would help me to heal. So, so yes, you know that is what really created this sense of the only way to move forward is to go back, essentially. And so, in my mid twenties, I went back to my hometown, called up all the girls I'd been raised with in my youth group who I could get a hold of at that time, and started to do a year of interviews with them uh, about their adult experiences with sex gender and sexuality. And that became the beginning of what became 12 years of interviews with people who were raised in communities like mine. So white American evangelical churches as girls around the country. Yeah. You know, as you described the experience of isolation, it, it almost sort of sounds like PTSD in a way, you know, that the nightmares and the deep concern over sexual exploration and all these messages that you've been told. Right. And that is exactly why I felt so completely broken because, because it did feel like PTSD in a lot of ways, which didn't make any sense to me. I, I knew that what I had been taught was uh, concerning and was, um, you know, something that I needed to, to wrestle with and deconstruct. I knew that, but it was the physical side. It was the, the ways in which it, it seemed as though I had 
been to war, you know, when I looked at my life and I was like, what is going on with me? Why is, why can't I shake this? Why can't I get this out of my body? You know, I'm at a point where, where I really had come to see sexuality and spirituality as um, no longer mutually exclusive, but my body was reacting very differently. And so that, that was really what felt the scariest. And that was ultimately what led me you know, back on this journey because those whispered conversations I referenced, those weren't just conversations about uh, feelings and about, you know, fears, but they were conversations about the ways in which these feelings and these fears and these anxieties were living in people's bodies and coming up in ways that mimicked classic PTSD. So it turns out I was not the only person who was having nightmares turns out I was not the only person who was having extreme anxiety. Many people talked about anxiety. Some people talked about having anxiety when they thought about sex, sexuality or um, started to engage in sexual experiences. I did. But other people had extreme anxiety that sometimes became so extreme they were hospitalized for panic attacks associated with other things like simply looking at their curvy body in the mirror and feeling so anxious about this sexualization that they couldn't strip from Mm -hmm. themselves Mm -hmm. um, that it created that anxiety. Or some people talked about feeling it when they um, went into a church, you know, Mm -hmm. the place in which they had been so repeatedly shamed that they would break down into tears every time they went into a church and uncontrollably so and didn't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. A lot of us were experiencing almost paranoid experiences where people were fearing, you know, that um, that something horrible was going to happen to them, um, you know, uh, like like becoming pregnant, though we weren't having sex or people being afraid that they were being followed going out on dates because people would try to find them out as sexual. So, so there was so much that felt, you know, for a lot of years to me. I mean, I, I mean, people thought I was crazy in the secular world. (laughs) Oh, I totally know. Yeah. I felt, I felt crazy and they were like, you're right. (laughs) You know? So, so yeah, it really really was, it was those experiences that made me most afraid and those experiences that drew me back to my hometown and then drew me to all of these other communities around the country, um, you know, and starting starting to piece together how common they were and and then starting to try to understand what happened to us that created these commonalities. Right. And there's, uh, you know, just from my own experience growing up in a seventh, the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, which sort of embraced American evangelicalism about the time that you're describing. Um, I was a little bit older. I was already married in my 20s when the purity movement really got started. So much of what you talked about, you you described like this experience is so embodied, you know, like <laughs> we have sex with our bodies. And uh, as I was reading your book, I thought so much had been healed. And then as I was reading, I'm like, whoa, where is this coming from? You know, it was something like in my gut or in my chest or somewhere in my body, I was feeling reactions to what I was reading because it was so real and so raw. So I'm, you know, personally, I'm so grateful that you wrote this book because I think a lot of women don't talk about these things. Well, I mean, you know, we also have been 
society-wide and and certainly it's a part of Christianity, we've been taught to ignore our bodies. Mm-hmm. We've been taught that our bodies are to be controlled, <laughs> you know, that we get angry at our bodies when we get sick, right? Right. Um, we're like, what's wrong with you? I'm, I'm, I'm taking echinacea. And I really felt like I needed to control my body for so many years growing up in the purity movement, especially, you know, where you're, where you're trying to control your thought life and your feelings and, you know, things that, um, that are very physical and, and sort of stack your spiritual life, um, you know, above your physical life, completely ignoring the reality that these things are deeply intertwined and that we are one whole person (laughs) that has a mind and a spirit and a body. And, you know, when you talk about reading the book and having these things show up in your body, that really resonates with me because really that's what was happening in these years where I was trying to understand what we were taught and why, why it was impacting us. You know, it was my body that was speaking to me. It was my body, this, this very thing that I had ignored for so long that was making itself unignorable. I was struggling with um, illness as well that was forcing me to pay attention to some of these things that were manifesting in larger sort of life-threatening um, illness ways. But also these, these PTSD-like symptoms you know, really were, I think, my body shouting and screaming and making it clear that something I'd been taught was deeply damaging. And had my body not been speaking perhaps I would have continued to try to push it down mm. in my mind and in my spirit for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I, I was telling my mom too, I was, I mentioned to her, she's in her mid seventies that I was going to be talking with you and she wanted to know more about the book. And uh, I told her about it and she said, oh, I've ordered it on Amazon. It's coming. I'm really excited to start reading it. And she grew up also in a, in a very well, sort of sectarian fundamentalist uh, tradition, also Seventh-day Adventist. And she remembers like having her skirt measured, you know, for to make sure that she was, you know, she was covering everything that she was supposed to cover. And it wasn't the same purity movement of the late 80s, early 90s and into the 2000s, but it was still kind of precursor of that. And I wonder, like, if you have any thoughts about how this movement has differed across the generations of people who grew up with this very repressed sexuality and gender norms that were really harmful, especially to women. Well, you are absolutely right. This purity message has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, It is not anything new. And that's one of the reasons that the purity movement was so successful. It wasn't creating a new idea, a new message and putting it out there. It was building upon a well-established foundation of sexual control, particularly of women's sexual control via shaming and of gender imbalance. And Mm -hmm. when I say women's sexual control via shaming, you know, I'm talking about so many of our purity messages and, you know, that word purity isn't always the word that people use, but I'll use that as sort of a, a place marker. But so many of our sexuality messages for women are shaming at their core. So whether you're talking about you are pure or you are impure, or whether we're talking about you are a good girl or you're a bad girl, <laughs> or this is not something that you hear only in the church, um, or whether you're talking about, you know, you are a, a slut 
or you are a virgin. You know, all of these ideas are shaming in the sense that they define somebody in their totality. Researchers talk about, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this, but it's worth reminding ourselves, researchers talk about shame being this feeling, I am something bad, as opposed to say guilt, which is, you know, this feeling I did something bad. So some people are more prone to experience shame or guilt in response to, you know, a particular incident. So you and I might experience the same thing. One of us experience guilt and one of us experience shame. Mm-hmm. Guilt is actually considered a moral emotion. It makes you better. You yeah. want to do better, you know? Um, whereas shame is a deeply problematic emotion that disconnects us from ourselves, disconnects us from others, makes it less likely for us to become better because we, we isolate ourselves in self-hatred or other blaming others or hiding what's what we think uh, will be rejected for, whatever it is. You know, some people are more prone to react one way or another, but we can actually make somebody more likely to experience guilt or shame by whether we have healthy conversations with them that uh, create more of a guilt reaction where you develop empathy and start to think about how your actions impact others, or whether we consistently shame people and define them by whatever it is. So, you know, not just saying, let me help you with the answer to that to that question, you know, that's the wrong answer instead saying you're dumb. And, you know, in the sexuality education that we experience in the purity movement or whatever manifestation of it, you know, the thing that's consistent is it's shaming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We are defining people and particularly women and girls by their sexuality or more accurately by other people's feelings and perceptions of their sexuality. So that's been, that's been a long, long present reality for women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hear about you having grown up a little before the purity movement or about your mother being in her seventies and receiving some of these same messages. Um, and, and it really is, is worth us pausing on. So I'm glad you brought it up because this is why it's so hard for us to move past this is because mm-hmm. we have a deep cultural precedent set for shaming women around their sexuality. It is embedded into our culture. Even the mere fact that we use the term virgin, (laughs) like there's so few things that you suddenly go by a different label after your first experience of. But for some reason, we think, you know, your first time having sex changes you fundamentally and wholly to the extent that now you go by a different name. (laughs) Right. And I mean, it's used in ways that aren't even human ways, like the virgin trip of a ship or something like you know it's this like first experience connected to sexual experience it's used in all sort of sorts of ways i would love to hear more about that and about these mixed messages that women get in in the purity movement especially which add to the shame it's such a weird thing this expectation that you are going to go from being you know this completely non-sexual being to being a, a sexual tigress, you know, which as it turns out, it's, it's a term that I heard growing up in the church. And it turns out that many of my interviewees, you know, had heard that term in the church as, as an expectation for women. Mm-hmm. Um, because in many ways, it really is this kind of pornographic fantasy. And, and it's so, 
it's so strange that this pornographic fantasy has been turned into the definition of holiness, right? Right. <laughs> we have deified a pornographic fantasy and turned it into an expectation that women are shamed if they don't fulfill at either end. If they're either, uh, you know, considered too sexual before marriage, which, you know, there are so many ways that you can be considered too sexual. It might not, you know, you might have never even kissed somebody, but somebody could consider you too sexual because of how you walk or how you are considered flirting or whatever it is. Or you can be shamed for not being a sexual enough when you're right. in marriage bed. Right. Yeah. It is just so bizarre. And, you know, I think about the other side of this, you know, for those of us who are identified as straight and are in sexual relationships with men, for them too, right? Like this, this purity movement had, I'm sure, deep effect on them because they might have internalized all kinds of messages around who they were as sexual beings. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, there's weight that is placed on these gendered messages. So, you know, before marriage, I think that, uh, you know, women and girls are particularly expected to be sexually, quote unquote, pure. Men and boys are expected to be sexually pure as well, but the expectation is a much more flexible expectation. For example, you know, you may recall in the book, I talk about the books on masturbation. And uh, when they're targeted at men and boys, masturbation is talked about as a sin, but a forgivable sin, one that you shouldn't get too hung up on. Whereas when women and girls are addressed, the the message is much stricter. They should not masturbate at all. And mm-hmm. one of the core reasons that's given that isn't really mentioned in the books for men and boys is because there's this fear that if women and girls masturbate, it will demasculate their eventual husbands and harm their relationships. So the desexualization before marriage, the expectation is much stronger for women and girls than it is for men and boys. But I will also say that the hypersexualization after marriage, again, the expectation is there for both men and women, but the expectation is higher in many ways for men because it is a proof of their masculinity. So I think in some ways, men who have successfully desexualized and met that expectation might be even further feeling an internalized sense of shame in their marriage if they aren't sexual. And Mm -hmm. many, many men talk about having problems with being sexual in marriage. In fact, it's it's not something that only women experience, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm I'm in community now in my mainline Protestant uh, ministry with a lot of folks who have come out of evangelical traditions and at when they were in them were like youth pastors or youth group leaders and maybe have perpetuated some of this purity culture stuff that now they are like really upset about that they ever had anything to do with that, especially in transmitting it <laughs> to other kids um, and youth. So I'm wondering, what does repentance look like for people who are like waking up and realizing how awful this is? How how does one make it right? Hmm. I do think that the the first step is around ownership. I you know much like much like if you are having a problem with a friend or a problem with a romantic partner, you know, the first step is really owning. <laughs> yeah. And taking responsibility. 
um, and being able to say, I was involved in this and I may have thought that I was being helpful at the time, but I need to step uh, into a, a new position and come humbly and say, I was wrong. Um, because that really is the first step. And, and then the next step, you know, is around creating a space for healing and creating new messaging. And I don't think that those things, either of those can happen until leaders deconstruct how these things are really a a huge part of them as well. So many of us who, you know, who grew up with these things and who talked about these things to other people um, or maybe taught these things to other people, you know, we can't really change how we talk about these things with other people unless we do, again, that deep personal work around how and where we learned these things and uh, how they're impacting our lives. So, so I think part of owning the ways in which we've been complicit with teaching these things to others is, is the personal work around trying to understand how these things have taken deep root within us. Because I think if we don't do that, do that work on ourselves, though we might disagree with these things, we might also end up inadvertently reiterating those messages with others. So, you know, for example, uh, some people, when they leave the binary way of looking at the world that is so much of what we learn in evangelical Christianity, they leave that particular binary, but not the binary. (laughs) So they swap everything that was on the good side for the bad side and everything that was on the bad side for the good side. And instead of shaming people who are on the outside of the community, they now shame people who are on the inside of the community or whatever it is. Until we do the deep work to, to really question the binary altogether, you know, we're going to continue to perpetuate some of these same issues um, that have hurt us potentially. And purity is the same. If we grew up with these things or if if these things have been deeply internalized in us, though we might uh, have come to disagree with them, if we haven't done the deep personal work, we might end up continuing to teach them by what we do not talk about. For example, consent and rape and abuse in our congregations and in our youth groups or by the ways that we look at somebody (laughs) um, that other people pick up on, you know, all all kinds of ways that we can communicate this. So I would say, I would say that first step around doing the ownership is also a step of, of understanding your relationship to this, not just as a teacher um, and a preacher, but as a human being. So, so that, so that's something that I think those things go together, right? And some people start with, start with owning it externally, but most of us need to start with the personal work before we can even do that owning externally. Um, but over time, I think that, uh, that we can move into a new place. And I think that churches and religious leaders are very well equipped to do the work that comes next, which is providing spaces for people to heal from these messages. And also um, providing new, more helpful ways of looking at our sexuality and our bodies. Um, but you can't do those two things until you've done the first two things, um, really doing the personal work and owning what has happened externally um, that you've been a part of. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned quite a bit about the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And how that was like such a formative book within the purity movement. And since then, Joshua Harris has kind of apologized, maybe even series of apologies in various ways. 
what are your thoughts on on his apologies and the book itself and the way that it has perpetuated the shame? Yeah. When you have power, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to hold. I have worked a lot with powerful people. I spent a lot of years working with million dollar donors, you know, so I really understand power in a lot of ways. Um, and of course, with a lot of, you know, influential spiritual people and mm-hmm. other And a common theme that has really arisen for me in the power conversation is that as you rise in the ranks of power, or if you're born with power, even more difficult, um, you know, for example, if you're born with a lot of wealth or a lot of influence, um, you know, people do not check you from the outside. You know, average people (laughs) like me, you know, when I do something or say something that's upsetting, somebody will give me a look or they'll say something or, you know, they'll check me, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm I'm like checked from the outside. I don't, I don't get away with it, you know, Um, you know, most, in most cases. But as you start to become more and more powerful, people on the outside stop checking you. And I've really seen this happen where, where somebody, you know, somebody will say something, um, a person in power will say something and someone will say, um, oh gosh, yeah, that's such an interesting point. And then immediately afterward, when that person is out of earshot, we'll be like, I was so hurt and upset by that. And, you know, so, so there's something that happens when you're in a place of power where people stop checking you and you can start to get away with things that the average person can't get away with. And that means that you need to do um, more work. It means that you need to check yourself and that you need to focus on that journey, that aforementioned personal journey and that listening and that depth um, more than the average person does (laughs) because uh, there will be fewer people who do it for you. So in that sense, as a person of influence, I would say the process that Josh Harris is going through is a required one for all people of influence. Um, and that he would be, a, you know, as a person of integrity, I hope, required to continue on that journey. I would like to see him continue to question not just courtship, but purity teachings um, in a much broader sense of the word. So I think when we're thinking about Josh Harris, it's useful for us to kind of go back and think a little bit about this purity movement and where it came from, um, having been built upon this purity ethic. So certainly, um, you know, in the early 1990s, the unique thing that happened that I am referencing in this book is that the white American evangelical church really started this industry around purity. What happened is that within the evangelical subculture, there was suddenly a lot more talk about the importance of maintaining your sexual purity and the threat of losing it. Um, And those things were put forth as not just one way to assess whether or not you were an evangelical, but if you were a young person, they started to be put forth so so strongly that it became, in many people's minds, the way to assess whether or not you were an evangelical. And one of the things that happened at this time is that some of the previously perhaps more extreme conservative voices of evangelicalism were embedded into the mainstream. Josh Harris is a perfect example of that because he grew up in the homeschooling movement where courtship was uh, commonly talked about. Courtship, this idea that you shouldn't date, but that you should instead court a marriage partner um, with the 
intimate involvement of both sets of parents that he talks about in I Kiss Dating Goodbye. This wasn't a mainstream evangelical belief at the time. But the purity movement changed all that because uh, the energy of the purity movement mainstreamed ideas like that. And those who were spreading ideas like that and really became kind of the the fire that IKDG, that <laughs> I Kiss Dating Goodbye rose on, right? So, so generally speaking, when you look at the purity movement and the purity products that came out, they are representing perspectives that were traditionally more conservative than the average evangelical parent was probably teaching their children at the time. Um, so you can really start to see many, many products that came out, many books, many uh, videos, many curricula, you know, all kinds of things that took a much harder line uh, on sexual purity. And really, I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Joshua Harris was just one of many voices that were brought into the mainstream at this point. Yeah, it was almost like a return to an earlier time or something, only modernized you know, through consumerism. And um, yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating, like in your research and in your study, have you have you been able to identify like what caused what is was fringe before to sort of move into the center? Well, some people believe that evangelical Christians really stepped up in this moment because they saw it as an opportunity to maintain political relevance. Evangelicals have been teaching abstinence only before marriage messaging to young people for a very long time. And of course, in the 1980s uh, and early 90s, we were in the midst of the AIDS crisis. And uh, nationally, people were incredibly afraid and were talking about how to protect people and particularly protect young people. And abstinence only before marriage messaging was one of the solutions that was being put forth. So there you know, campaigning the government to allocate money to absence only before marriage programming was a, some say a strategic move because that was part of their platform and because they had a lot of that programming in house. Right. And, and there in the sixties and seventies was like a, a sexual revolution that was going on too in this country where there was a lot more free expression around sexuality, which I'm, I'm sure the evangelical church was probably responding to as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So this really, this really, the purity movement in many ways became a way for evangelical political voices to have a great deal of influence um, at the federal and state level. Right. And at, at the expense of so many you know, an entire generation, really. And and really young people, I would like to say, were essentially used because, you know, you couldn't have a, an older individual say sexual purity before marriage is really important and have any clout. What they needed, they needed were the young people who were on fire for this message. So you remember that when they went to the National Mall, they brought 20,000 young people with them, and they staked 200,000 purity pledges on the lawn of the mall. So by doing that, they were uh, showing the faces and the signatures 
of young people and really telling the story that this was a grassroots young people's movement. Yeah, I mean, when you really think about it, it's it's kind of sinister, like the way that young people were used. And I'm, you know, the reality is, is that in my life, I having no idea that any of this was going on, of course, you know, I was, I was one of the people who signed those pledges. I signed a pledge. My signature is on one of those pieces of paper, wherever it is, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, it really was, uh, I, I believed, I believed that this was the way for me to show my faith. And so, you know, had, had the president tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you part of this purity movement? I think I would have said, well, what purity movement? But then I would have said, yes, I'm 100% behind, you know, the importance of purity before marriage, right? Or purity, Mm -hmm. which includes um, being non-sexual before marriage. But I was, uh, of course, I was the believer in this because I was told that I uh, had to be and that that was how I would earn um, my, my standing as a Christian and, and how I would ensure my place in heaven. As I've grown older and as I've grown deeper in my faith, I, I really think that that just couldn't be wronger, <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> I really feel like uh, God cares about a lot of things about the world and about me. And I really don't think that this is registering as one of the top things in, of import by any means. Yeah. And um, do you remember your faith and sexuality being really connected? Absolutely. I mean, mean, that's the whole point of the purity industry is that you've got all these products that remind you that your faith and your sexuality are twinned. Um, You don't get one without the other. You don't get the faith identity without the sexual purity. You know, the purity ring that you wear that reminds you of of that importance that's got a cross on it for many people. You know, it's a ring with a cross on it. So it is a a ring that has the marker of your faith on it, but that means sexual purity. Now you've got a ring that, that has the image of Christ's death, meaning sexual purity on your finger every day. You've got your purity themed Bible where you've got, you know, in one case, 60 pages of non-biblical material all about the importance of sexual purity. So you've got about a sixth of your Bible that's entirely Mm -hmm. dedicated to the importance of sexual purity. You know, so that's another way in which these things become merged in your mind. Um, You know, all of these products really tell that story. And as a consumer, you consume the idea that your purity determines your um, Christianity and that without it, you might not even be a Christian. Right. And, And for a movement that is so concerned with young people having sex... It's so I remember even in in my youth groups, and I'm a little bit older, it seemed like all we ever talked about was sex, like how we shouldn't be having sex, how we shouldn't be. Let me ask you a question about that. Did you talk about sex or did you just talk about how you shouldn't be having sex? Like, did you talk about sex or did you talk about purity? Because I think that's the big thing, right? It's like you're constantly talking about sex, but you're never talking about sex. Yes, totally. And and, but I mean, it it was it was all about purity, but it was like kind of this weird erotic way that it was talked about. At least I remember that. I mean, I remember youth pastors saying things like, you know, they separated the boys and the girls and they were, they were male youth pastors who talked to both the boys and the girls in my particular setting. 
And I remember, you know, these male youth pastors would say things like, like the word stumbling block, which I know you use in your book quite a bit, and slippery slope, right? And um, how that as women, we shouldn't be stumbling blocks as girls, we shouldn't be stumbling blocks, uh, not just to the other 16 year old boys who are in the other realm, but also to them, you know, these grown men, and how internalizing that message, like, oh, boy, I better make sure my my shirt is buttoned up to the top, because I don't want to be a stumbling block for a 35 year old man who's married with two kids. Right, exactly. I remember that as well. I remember that as well. And I also remember being incredibly uncomfortable with that. <laughs> totally. You know, it's absolutely sexualizing. Um, you know, when you tell somebody that they have to cover up or their youth pastor is going to be tempted or their youth leader or the father of their friend is going to be tempted, you take the, the role that the young person is playing at that moment away from them by sexualizing them. You know, you, you, you now are not, not categorizing them as a learner, as a fervent spiritual seeker. The things that are drawing you into that room, the identities that are drawing you into that room are stripped of you. And you are told, no, you are a, a sexual being, right? You're, right. you're here in this space. You might think that you are coming as a student. You might think that you are coming as a follower of Jesus. But I am telling you that you are here as a sexual temptation. I think one of the things that was the most upsetting for me growing up with this was was constantly being surprised when I would be sexualized because I was in moments where I was fervently uh, being a person of faith or leading a Bible study or whatever it was, you know, I had a different hat on. <laughs> I was, I did not have the hat on of being a sexual person. I wasn't on a date. Right. Right. <laughs> and people were taking, taking the identities that I was bringing into that room and stripping, stripping those identities of me and saying, no, no, you are a sexual person first and foremost. Right. And that's so much to lay on a young person. It it makes normal, healthy development really impossible or at least very difficult, um, which sort of leads me into what I'd love to talk about next, which is, you know, what like what does teaching healthy sexuality look like, do you think? Well, I'm a really big fan of values-based sexuality. One of the metaphors that I sometimes use is that growing up with the purity message, I was really given this one tool, which is the tool of a ruler <laughs> that had a line on it somewhere where I went from pure to impure. Yeah. Uh, it was a little hard to know exactly where the line was because other people had different definitions when you lose your purity. Um, but that was the only that was the only tool I was given. Um, all those many, many conversations that we had about sex and youth group <laughs> right. gave me no other tool, nothing, you know, mm -hmm. um, it was just this ruler. And, uh, that ruler is remarkably unhelpful in, you know, 95% of the situations that you find yourself in, um, is certainly not at all helpful in situations of rape and abuse. It's not at all helpful navigating married life. Um, there are so many uh, situations. So what I really have grown to love are these values-based sexuality um, 
teachings that I sort of see as, as a kind of Swiss army knife, right? Because you've mm-hmm. got multiple values and multiple ways to, to navigate decision-making using these values. So one of the examples is, is the OWL curriculum, the Our Whole Lives curriculum, which teaches a set of values and, uh, and, then, and then basically um, helps people to work through how to make decisions using those values uh, in much the same way that we learn how to make values-based decisions in other parts of our lives. You know, we, you know, when we learn to become a healthy eater, <laughs> you know, we learn, you know, how to make healthy decisions. We learn not to eat an entire cake, you know, by ourselves. But we also, you know, learn that you can maybe have a slice of cake, you know. So, so you, learn, you learn how to think about your own health and wellness, how to consider all kinds of things when making healthy decisions in every part of our life, for the most part, um, except the parts of our lives around which we have shame and that we don't talk about. Money um, is one of them, but sexuality is, is all the more. So all of a sudden, all the rules that apply to every other part of our life <laughs> don't apply <laughs> to this. <laughs> so we put our values away and we pull out our ruler. And I really love the values-based models like OWL that say, okay, here, here are some values or um, what are your values? And, and then, you know, how, how do we kind of walk through some, some different questions and scenarios and help you think about how you would navigate this situation using that value or that situation using that value? And now, you know, let's give you a, a trusted, non-judgmental community that you can go to when, when you need an extra um, set of ears to help you work through how to make a values-based decision, how to ask yourself if this particular um, relationship is honoring to you and honoring to them, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And and have you used um, the Our Whole Lives curriculum with people who are sort of coming out of purity culture? Or haven't. I'm trained in the model, but I'm trained in the model really because I wanted to understand it better, but I've actually never taught it. I know. I was trained in it too, and I've used it with um, like youth and young adults, and it's been pretty powerful to be a part of, you know, to actually have these conversations. It's been very healing to have these conversations of values-based sexuality education post my own journey, you know. But I I sometimes wonder, like, like, it seems like it's a particular niche of education and healing that might be available through OWL to folks who are kind of coming out of purity culture. Well, one of the things that I love about OWL is that they really see this as lifespan education. One of the chapters in in my book talks about an evangelical church that's using OWL, and they're using it with their young people, with their junior hires. And the adults in the church, many of them are saying, I'm really jealous. (laughs) I want this. And so so one of the great things about OWL is that they recognize that and that they have lifespan education to the point where right now they're developing curriculum for people who are in what is traditionally called retirement age. So, so this really, this really is a, uh, something that many of us didn't get growing up and that we need at every stage of our, of our lives. Even those of us who, who did get it, you know, got a healthy sexuality education still need the tools, um, still need the community. These are difficult 
These are difficult things to navigate. But certainly if we've never learned how to make healthy decisions, you know, we, we need, we need these things at some point. If we, if we got no sexuality education, as many people didn't, or if we got something that calls itself sexuality education, but is actually fear education, anxiety education, shame education, like the purity model, I would suggest is we really need to learn these things. And I remember when I, you know, first left the purity movement and, you know, for many years couldn't, couldn't have sex, you know, for, I, it took me about five years. Um, yeah. to be and what, what I wouldn't have given for a re-education that could have helped me during those years where I was really just trying to figure it out on my own and understand decision-making on my own um, in ways that would be healthy. And, and I really didn't have that. So, so it, was, it took so much longer and, and had so much more pain associated with it than it needed to. And, and didn't just hurt me. You know, I wasn't the only one in these relationships. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Because, you know, I do wonder some of the different ways that OWL could be useful and other sexuality education models that are based on values. And yeah, and and loving oneself first (laughs) and knowing oneself as a sexual being first and then engaging, you know, in, in relationships with others. So many of the people who write me um, write me because they say, I'm in a relationship and I don't want to lose it the way that I've lost the last ones because of this purity messaging that lives inside of me. Um, I hear that a lot from people. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, you know, I, I wonder, especially this time of year, you know, we talked about virgins before, and I wonder about some of these images within Christianity, like the image of Eve, the image of Mary, the Virgin Mary, who gives birth to Jesus. How do you think those images might be related to this American evangelical purity movement? Or are are they? Was this a completely extra biblical movement? Mm. We have had uh, fear of sexuality, <laughs> and in particular, fear of women's sexuality in our world for a very long time. Um, not in every culture at every moment, but it is pretty consistent. You know, the idea that the mother of Jesus is holy because she is sexless, that's really the only thing that we get told about her. You know, the only information that we have about Mary that makes her holy is that she didn't have sex. And it really feels like a further illustration of what we learned today about good girls and bad girls. You know, when we say good girls and bad girls, we know we're not talking about how much they're volunteering, um, whether they open the door for people, (laughs) right? (laughs) whatever it is, you know, we, we don't talk about those things because those things don't matter in much of our assessment of good girls and bad girls. Ultimately, what we're talking about is, uh, is their sexuality. And, you know, the way in which we talk about Mary is a further illustration of that. We talk about her as the, as the sexless mother, and that makes her holy. Right. I heard, actually, um, my husband is also a minister, and he preached a sermon on Mary one time that, to me, felt really life-giving. 
he sort of turned that theology of Mary as sexless to more like God and Mary making Jesus completely subverted the patriarchy. And instead of Jesus being in kind of a line of patriarchal houses that could he you know could be traced back to you know who knows when that gave him his lineage whatever that was completely subverted and like turned on its head because he came from a woman and there was no father you know there was no house that could claim patriarchal household that could claim Jesus and that that's was, really powerful yeah I was like, wow, you know, and then the Elizabeth and Zachariah story, uh, which is connected to Mary's story, um, in which Elizabeth wasn't sexless, but they didn't name their child after his father, Zachariah. They named him John, which was also sort of subverting this tradition of a patriarchal lineage of some kind as being what gives someone any kind of credibility or credence. So I don't know. That was like, wow, I like that. <laughs> like that's something I can kind of get behind. If, if the story says Mary's a virgin, then her being a virgin for that reason. Okay. I can kind of get behind that. That's beautiful. But it is, but it is an interesting, it is an interesting thing. I remember when I was in youth group hearing about Mary being a 14 year old we assume, right? Um, sort of guessing based on what we know about the culture and the time, et cetera. And, and therefore seeing me as a, when I was 14, when I heard that, um, really wanting to uh, think about modeling myself after Mary um, as one of the few good women <laughs> that we yeah. learn about in the church. And the only information I had to go on was that she hadn't had sex. So though I love what you're what you're saying and I I think that that is very powerful I would also like to say is that I would have loved to have heard more about Mary's life than that. <laughs> totally. I would have loved, if we're going to if we're going to have her as one of our core models um please give me some more information about her <laughs> how I can model my life after her more than more than being a virgin. Absolutely. She was she's been used, you know, for the for the same purpose as the young people were used uh, in the story that you told about uh, how uh, the evangelical church was working to, to gain political power. Because even I mean, like if you read the Magnificat, which is this beautiful piece of poetry on how she's going to raise this child to be like this resistor of oppression, but that's often not mentioned as part of her story, like at least in the churches I grew up in. It's one of those things that like, you know, you know, when you read, when you read the Bible in the church, it's, I, I really, I need to go through and read the whole thing, you know, just from beginning to end ha after having left, because, you know, you end up having such clear interpretations of the text based on what you were taught about them and seeing the things you were taught to see and not seeing the things you were taught not to see. Right. Here's this, here's this example of it right here. Definitely read it because it's like, it's a badass piece of poetry spoken from a woman who is determined to 
bring light into the world. Yeah, the proud will be brought low, the humble will be lifted up, the hungry will be fed, and the rich will go without. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's not, she's not a good girl. Yeah, on the pure impure scale, I she's kind of, she's being uh, rather forceful with her language. So I'd love to hear more about your, like, your spiritual journey. Like, where are you now? That's a great question. I, I, it's so funny because I still find myself defining it by the rules of whether I'm going to church. <laughs> but, um, but the reality is, is that I no longer see that as a decider of whether or not I'm a Christian. But I, I always hesitate when people ask precisely because of that question. You know, so I am one of the, the many people who considers herself a Christian and you know, for whom faith is one of the most important parts of my life and one of the most important parts of my identity, who prays through every day, you know, in very intentional ways, and yet has a really hard time going to church every Sunday, in large part because I was hurt by embedding myself that deeply into a community at one point in my life. And I think I have a little bit of fear about embedding myself that deeply again. Though I go to religious retreats and religious conferences and, you know, have a lot of spiritual community that I engage with in, um, you know, a week at a time or a weekend at a time, depending on what the activity is, I still find myself hesitating hesitating to embed myself deeply into a community. And because that is how we define whether or not (laughs) you are an active Christian in our culture, uh, you know, particularly, you know, in the evangelical church, but I think in much of our culture, I still find myself, I still find myself pausing before answering that question. (laughs) Yeah. Have you looked at other faith traditions? Other Christian faith traditions? No, other outside of Christian, like Buddhism or like goddess worship or 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 do you find that Christianity there there's something just really foundational about it to you or something? I've definitely expanded the uh the way in which I approach God and use a lot of things that I've picked up from other traditions. I meditate, I dance, and I consider my dance to be um, an act of, of spiritual searching or spiritual devotion at times. Um, I dance every day as part of, um, part of my spiritual practice. I do yoga as part of my spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. I, I journal, right? You know, so all of these things that come from other traditions have offered me uh, different ways to be able to access God, and in some cases, more embodied ways to be able to access God um, right. that allow me to bring my full self. Yeah. And, but what about Christianity is still something that you relate to or that you identify with? What is it about Christianity that's holding you? It's the person of Jesus. It's the teachings of Jesus, the radical love, the radical acts for justice, the focus on the marginalized. There's so much that I have learned about how to see see Jesus's teachings in context that inspire me anew and bring me back to Christianity 
still resonating with the things that first resonated with me when I joined Christianity, like the teaching of unconditional love. But layering on now this this deeper uh, respect and honor and love for aspects of Jesus that I didn't learn about when I was growing up, right. um, you know, around justice. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Because, um, and I, you know, as I as I hear you talk about identifying church with Christianity, I mean, obviously that's not how it all began. You know, <laughs> like we've we've certainly made those two go together, where the early Christian community was just meeting in houses, talking about this guy that was teaching this radical love stuff and wondering, does it have value, you know? And might it be something that we want to share with other people? And yeah, so just as I'm listening, I'm just like, what, you know, how has church like gotten in the middle (laughs) of something that is really meant to be maybe always outside of institutions? Um, I don't know. I think it's very hard for the things that are the most spiritual and the most true to survive in institutional settings, because the reality is, is that the things that are most spiritual and most true are not easily defined. Right. That's, that's what makes them, that's what makes them true is, um, you know, it's much like what we were talking about, about a values-based decision. Teaching about a hard and fast rule is easy to teach. Giving someone a ruler is easy, right? That's the kind of thing that an institution can hand out. An institution can hand out a bunch of rulers, you know, to teach somebody values, um, and to teach them how to make values-based decisions and to teach them, um, to provide the community that's going to stand by them while they make those values-based decisions and support them while they make them messy decisions sometimes in which they get hurt and support them when they get hurt. That is the kind of thing that is much easier, much more difficult for an institution to deliver. And therefore, that which is the true the true model of community and spiritual community, I would say, um, ends up getting dumbed down into into rulers. You know, if we really want to do Christianity the way in which it is presented in its, in its deepest forms, it's the kind of thing that takes our whole selves um, and that can't be reduced to fit into an institutional shape. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. It almost seems like once it becomes institutionalized, it's no longer Christianity. It's certainly much harder. I think it's certainly much harder. And that's sort of the nature of institutions. It's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that, you know, when I've worked in organizations, we often warn people when you're going from a small organization to a mid-sized organization, or from a mid-sized organization to a large organization, you need to be really, really careful because the nature of the thing is going to change dramatically because they just function differently. (laughs) You know, the way in which you can be together as a small group and hold one another in the complexity, you know, is very different from the systems that you need to put into place to make sure that things don't get completely out of hand (laughs) as a large group. So, and it's those systems that are important for the large group to continue to function. I'm not against institutions, right? Institutions are important and they need those systems. 
it's just unfortunate that those systems tend to reduce spiritual depth to um, talking points and uh, rulers. And yet, we, I, I also, I heard you say earlier, and I agree that a spiritual journey that's isolated can be lonely. <laughs> and, and the opportunity for growth is, I think, somewhat, um, ah, it's kind of like it shrivels a little bit when we are in community and spiritual community and we're walking together. It certainly enhances our, relationship with ourselves and with God. But that's not the same thing as institution. You know, spiritual community doesn't have to be institutionalized, I I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I completely agree. And I think that's why we have, um, you know, intentional communities and Mm -hmm. house churches and things like that, where, you know, for a long time, um, people have been feeling this and um, and finding ways to to be together differently and mm-hmm. be in spiritual community differently. Yeah. Well, we've probably gotten off track just a little bit. So I have to, <laughs> uh, we'll blame Mary for that. <laughs> I really am feeling bad for the, the editors. I know. I am too. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Um, it's been so lovely talking with you, Linda. Thank you so much for making this time and I just, I know that the audience of Irenicast is, they're just going to be so appreciative because so many folks' journeys are sort of parallel to the one that you describe out of the audience that we have. So um, it's so life giving to know, number one, that you're not alone. And number two, that there, there's someone brave enough to like put this in print and uh, say, let's talk. Because that's the best way to undo shame is to just talk out loud about, you know, what we're feeling and experiencing. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I just have one more question or just one more, you know, maybe topic for you to to share with us is like, what's next for you in relation to your work? I'd love to hear more about Break Free Together you know, anything that you're involved in that you would like to share? Well, as I'm a big believer in what you just said. So as you just said, I believe that the way that we really heal is by coming together and just talking, (laughs) Uh, that there is a tremendous amount of power in telling our stories. And there's a tremendous amount of power in listening to the stories. And that really was my healing process over the course of the past now 13 years. It was 12 years I was working on the book. Um, you know, and then it's been in production <laughs> for a year. So it's now been 13 years since I started this journey. And and that and that really that really has been my process of healing. Um, it's it's the experience of um, of repeatedly hearing and coming to believe in really the part of myself that I wasn't alone. And then simultaneously looking for the context and trying to understand what was happening around us that was creating um, some of the things that that um, that it turned out to be common. So Break Free Together is really uh, an organization that tries to replicate what I stumbled into with my interviewees, which is the process of healing via a sacred story exchange. 
And it was very healing for my interviewees as well, I should add. You know, many of them talked about it being life-changing. So we do a number of different things through Break Free Together because I'm interested in people being able to come into story at the level that they are ready to. Uh, And I know that people are at very different places in terms of their um, preparedness to to talk about these things. There's a tremendous amount of um, anonymity among people who work in this space. Um, I know people who host podcasts under under, non, under a fake name, people who write books under fake names. So so there's that's just an illustration of um, of how not everyone is ready to send out, you know, a blog post d- detailing their sexual right. shame. <laughs> right. So so one of the things that we're doing is a, a postcard campaign where people can literally send me a postcard that tells their story of what they learned about sexuality growing up and what the legacies of those teachings have been on their adult lives that I can then share on the Break Free Together Instagram page so that their stories can be told uh, without their names having to be attached to it. That's sort of for people who are really at the most private stage, right? Where they want to be part of it, but they maybe they sign their name, but most likely they don't, right? And then uh, for people who are wanting to get into an in-person conversation, something that we piloted that went really, really well that we're now building out uh, is a dinner model where people, uh, you know, have a dinner where they sit down together and are led through a series of questions that are carefully designed and a series of opening and closing rituals that uh, allow people to, again, talk about what they learned about sexuality growing up and what the legacies have been on their lives um, and and be with one another and and experience uh, what it feels like to break through that shame and to actually have some of these conversations uh, as a as a kind of um, test case right a, a proof point that it's possible um, that we can create a container where people can have these conversations with seven or eight people that might inspire more of us to have these conversations with our closest friends or with our partner. Um, So those are the kinds of things that we're doing via Break Free Together. We're really creating different ways for people to um, tell their stories and to hear the story. So the dinner conversations, which sound amazing, like what a great way to, um, you know, having dinner together, such an, it's an embodied practice of connection uh, to heal by sharing a meal and talking across the dinner table. Um, is, is, are these conversations happening like sort of all across the country? Right now we're doing large scale dinners uh, where we'll work with a conference or a college or a church or some other large group and we'll do a one-time dinner. But we are doing that in part because we are really trying to learn what would work for people who want to lead these out of their home. So at the large-scale dinner, we have people who are trained to lead uh, a small table. Uh, so the tables are about seven to eight people. Um, so you would have you know, if you have 50 people at a dinner, you would have, you know, so many people trained. If you have more, you have more. And we are hoping eventually that we can create a model where somebody can be trained uh, and do it out of their home. There's all kinds of challenges around that. Um, for instance, if you're in a large scale space, we can have things provided like somebody there to uh, to be on call in case somebody um, uh, veers into a space of trauma and finds that they need to talk with somebody. Um, we can have trauma therapists there, you know, 
for example, in a way that we can't in the home space. Eventually, we're hoping to, to be able to create an in-home model. But for now, we, we really are creating the, um, the large group space uh, where there can be more protections available for people. Wow, that sounds that sounds great. Just from listening to what people need, you know, it just sounds like you're you're meeting so many needs by providing space like that for people to connect, share, and then have professionals to help. The legacy of the purity movement and the shame and the internalization of misogyny and all these things, it really takes a lot to undo those messages and talking is part of it, but then often we find deeper things that need to be worked on that we need yeah, extra help with. So I just, I love the comprehensive approach and also how it just feels so open and welcoming and uh, like somebody could just enter it from wherever they are rather than feeling like they have to be prepared to enter the conversation. And it's not, I'll, I'll add that it's not just for the subjects of my book. It's not just for people right. who are raised in white evangelical Christianity as girls. <laughs> you know, this is a model that's for everyone and, and was designed to be because sexual shame, you know, is a reality that most of us live with. Right. Yeah. Well, where can people find you, Linda, if they want to find you online or, um, yeah, where, where are good places to connect with you? You can find me at lindakklein.com and that's my full name. So the middle name K-A-Y and, uh, and there's a page there called Break Free Together. You can read more about the things that we were talking about, about the dinner model and the postcard campaign. Wonderful. Yeah. And are you, what is next? Are you planning to write more on this? Are you... Yeah, I'm just curious, like what else is in the works or or are you just, you have so much to do right now that you're just continuing on with what's what you've already started? Great question, Bonnie. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been planning for this work for so long. So the the last 13 years, I've been, you know, not just exclusively doing this work, I've been doing a lot of other things. And that whole time, I've been waiting for the day that I can really focus on this work. So I've only, you know, envisioned my life up until this point. <laughs> <laughs> and and now I'm at the moment where um, where I need to start to uh, ask these questions around what's next, and I don't quite have answers yet. Yeah, well, that totally makes sense. And it, I, I read. I mean, I I've, in reading your book, it seemed like you were surprised to end up on the journey that you ended up being on for the last twelve years. So I imagine more surprise awaits going forward. Yeah, thank you so much for this really rich and wonderful conversation. And yeah, I guess it's getting pretty late there in New York City. So no, this was fantastic. I really appreciated this conversation. All right. Take care, Linda. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye.